Hello and welcome to Two Worlds, One Country on WEHC and WISE-FM in Emory and Wise, Virginia, and also on podcasts around the world. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and today's segment is part two of a fascinating and ever so critical discussion with Stacy Mitchell. Stacy is the co-executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, or ILSR for short, is the author of Big Box Swindle, and is truly a nationally known expert on, on two very important and closely related questions, the well-being and the, the potential for small independent businesses, and the second part being in the fight to slow down and reverse corporate control of our entire economy, and for that matter, politics. So Stacy, welcome back to Two Worlds, One Country. So nice to be back with you again. I, I so enjoyed the first conversation. Looking great. forward to part two. Great, great. So we kind of left part one at this juncture where you were beginning to talk about how ILSR, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, has a, a unique position in these fights because on the one hand, you bring a big lens, the 30,000-foot lens, as we as we say these days, of being a national organization that is testifying before Congress, but simultaneously you're really grounded in hundreds of local communities because you work in hundreds of local communities. So I want to move from that to to really this very basic question. What's really the big deal? What's the connection between the well-being of, of small independent businesses, small to midsize, and the fight against big corporations? Why are those two related? Corporate concentration is out of control. Um, you know, corporations, a handful of corporations now dominate er nearly every corner of our economy and our politics, as you noted. I would argue that this is the fundamental problem of our times, that it is the root cause of many of the problems that we see, including, you know, extreme levels of inequality, the breakdown of democracy. And it's also the reason that we are unable to deal with major challenges like uh, the climate crisis, uh, for example. Independent small businesses have been disappearing in droves. And the explanation that we've been given for decades now is, well, they can't compete, right? They're, they're just not, they underperform. They're not as good. They're not as efficient. They're not as effective as the big guys. But I'll what note, I'll note as a farmer, excuse me for interrupting, I'll note as a farmer that we've heard the same thing about uh, smaller family farms compared to agribusiness, that it's an efficiency issue. We're just not able to compete, even though plenty of studies have shown that on a per acre basis, small farms can produce more and many other things. So very similar argument has been used to justify the biggie sizing of, of ag as well. That's exactly right. And, and that's essentially what I was just going to say, is that you look at one sector after another, and what you find is that on lots of objective measures, small outperforms, you know, um, it, it's certainly true in farming where, you know, you've got more production per acre on a more sustainable basis, plus a whole host of community and democracy benefits that come from small scale agriculture. Um, and the same thing is true across the economy, you know, whether you look at uh, independent pharmacies, for example, absolutely provide much higher levels of healthcare, more interaction with patients, and lower prices, substantially lower prices than the chains. And yet, 
have been disappearing, have been steadily losing market mm. share. Uh, community banks, community banks have lower fees, better interest rates, uh, do far more productive lending. They uh, provide the lion's share of small business loans and kind of productive local economy loans that generate jobs. Um, the big banks spend a lot of their resources doing speculation that's that's more destructive rather than that kind of lending. Uh, and yet the big banks are gaining ground against the small banks. Uh, the, the fastest broadband speeds in this country are where there are small, in some cases, community or publicly owned broadband networks. It's not the big guys wow, um, wow. that are provide the, you know, it's it's rural North Dakota where there's a co-op. That's where the fastest broadband speeds are. And I could go on. This is like a lot of the research that ILSR does. It's right. just systematically going, looking at these industries and kicking the tires. Like we're so we're so caught up in this idea that bigger is superior. Mm -hmm. You know, when you really look at it, it turns out that in fact, you know, there are lots of reasons why small scale enterprises are are crucial uh, and to to just sort of basic market outcomes. And then you start to layer onto that how important it is to have a political economy in which power is dispersed. You know, one of the ways that I like to think about what anti-monopoly is all about, why anti-monopoly is a core part of any kind of democratic governance structure is, you know, you think about, we, we all are familiar with the idea of checks and balances. You know, we have these three branches of government and we've got these checks and balances so that no one branch gets out of control, it seizes too much power and undermines democracy. The anti-monopoly laws, th that's what they do for private accumulations of power. So they are as central to democratic design as the other checks and balances are. If you don't have those, you end up with these uh, corporations or individuals who amass extraordinary power to dictate terms, to control the fates of places, to make decisions that have wide reaching effects with no democratic oversight at all. Mm -hmm. And we also know, just to kind of go back to the, to the small scale version of that, that the more you distribute economic power, the more that people and communities actually control their, you know, have a say in the decisions that affect their lives and their futures the more the healthier those places are from a civic standpoint that people tend to know their neighbors to engage in community meetings civic meetings everything else more often that those places are healthy that basically communities are the building blocks of democracy and when you when you undercut communities and and extract their power and leave them subservient to these distant forces that that has a, an erosion a, it erodes democracy at its most basic level yeah yeah and even i think if i remember i think it was thomas lyson but and you might have quoted him i know michael schumann is quoted him but but even physical health uh, all the civic indicators voter participation rates uh giving levels uh, all increase the more diverse the more you have lots of independence but but people are generally healthier and there's less less problems of crime even low birth weight babies it's quite remarkable what um having a a strong and diverse business base does for all dimensions of our life. That's right. You know, Thomas Lyson, uh, who was a, uh, he's passed on now, but he was a sociologist at Cornell, I believe. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And he, and there are a few other sociologists who did this great body of analysis, kind of looking at places that either had 
you know, where the economy was sort of one big employer that was uh, absentee, uh, you know, big corporation from away, or a diversified, more locally rooted economy. And they compared those kinds of communities and, and, and found overwhelmingly that all of these measures of, of social, physical, civic health are all better in communities where there is dispersed power and and where people have some some measure of, of control over their collective control over their over their future uh, including mortality um you know i mean it can really be measured uh in that way as well mm-hmm. but just to like close because like, I, I sort of talked a lot a, a kind of a, a, around this question of this relationship between independent business and fighting corporate power but the you know the primary reason that independent businesses and small family farms and community banks are disappearing is not because they can't compete it's because the big companies have rigged the market and used their size and financial power in ways to undermine competition and so that's sort of the link between the two they're you know both fighting the corporate control is hugely important for all the reasons but also there's all this to gain from from building up the local and that's the the two things that we we try to do and the notion that that the government should stay out of that because that's the that's the market and that's the private sector is so often heard but there's some there's some real flaws with that argument as you you made a great comparison between the checks and balances across the three branches of government and then its laws that provide whatever degree of checks and balances we have within the market, between big and small, across geography and all that. One one very positive example of using the law, public policy, um, and the benefits that come out of it is, is it North Dakota that has the law helped to ensure um, still a very strong base of small independent pharmacists? Is that right? Yeah, the, the pharmacy ownership law, which North Dakota passed in that. the 1960s. Okay. Um, they prohibit chains from owning pharmacies. So their Walmart stores in North Dakota do not have pharmacies in them. There are no Walgreens or CVS. Oh um, there's a there are a handful, like maybe six or seven chain pharmacies in North Dakota that had opened prior to the law passing that, mm-hmm. that have been grandfathered in. But other than that, every pharmacy in North Dakota is locally owned and independent. Um, we thought that would be was fascinating. Uh, it's the only state in the, in the country where that's true. Um, so we decided to do a case study. So this is a perfect opportunity to, it's a natural experiment. Right. Like, you know, what, what happens if you only have independence? And as it turns out, North Dakota has more pharmacies per capita than any other state in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and pharmacies are very prevalent even in the smallest communities. So if you live in the most rural census tracts, types of census tracts in North Dakota, you're twice as likely to have a local pharmacy as uh, if you live in that rural census tract in South Dakota. That's incredible. Um, And if you live in a city in North Dakota, you have lots more choice because there's lots of different independents that you can choose from. So there's competition, there's choice, there are options. Um, Whereas in South Dakota, it's what we see in much of the rest of the country in cities where you know, you only have two or three um, options. Uh, the other thing is that North Dakota has among the lowest prescription drug prices in the country. 
and prices have been rising much more slowly there than in neighboring states. And they have a much higher level of care that people get more screenings, more one-on-one -on -one healthcare from their local pharmacist than people typically get from pharmacies, uh, you know, chain pharmacies in the rest of the country. So, you know, as it turns out, uh, banning chain pharmacies actually leads to a higher level of pharmacy service, more competition, and lower prices. The law does that by requiring that pharmacies are owned by the person living in the community or the state? What, how, how do they exactly accomplish that? They What they determined is that uh, a, a pharmacy needs to be owned by a licensed pharmacist, that ah, the only okay. people, the only entities that can operate pharmacies have to be healthcare providers. Um, and the reasoning behind that is that you shouldn't have companies making decisions about healthcare. You should only have actual healthcare providers making decisions about healthcare. And it's, you know, there, there uh, are similar laws in a number of European countries. So mm -hmm. it's not uh, unusual globally, but it is unusual in the US. And there are some states here that have laws around um, eye care and sort of related areas of healthcare that also do a little bit of that, not to the same degree, but kind of follow on some level that same principle that you know, healthcare providers should be the ones actually making decisions about healthcare businesses. Interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna work on a law that only only farmers can own farms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> you know, I love this idea. Like, I feel like there's a whole uh, someday when I have time, I sort of want to write about the idea of what does it mean when businesses are run by people who actually care about the thing that is the business. I mean, right. so many of the companies today, like you know, Target, they don't care it's dollars per square foot they'll right. sell whatever they can get you know a return on right, they have no commitment or interest in any of the actual stuff right. so different from like you know a local bookstore owner or a local toy store owner you know where they actually care about the thing that they're doing and that brings so many benefits in terms of um, how they interact with their customers, the kinds of suppliers that they work with, you know, uh, it's just, it really changes the outcomes. And yeah. yeah, I'm with you on the only people who should own farms or should be farmers. <laughs> so I want to move us as we're sort of steadily getting there into some political questions around this. Now I've kind of, kind of contextualize it by saying that my understanding, I've followed this not closely, but a little bit is that, um, one of the positives in the Biden administration, and, and Biden doesn't get a whole lot of credit from a whole lot of anybody, but um, one of them is that some of the key people who would enforce anti-monopoly laws, antitrust laws, um, are some of the most vigorous fighters that any administration has put in in some time. So with that, is, first of all, you can comment on that. And then I want to hear you build on a statement that said that you thought the left, meaning the political left, had made a big mistake by largely ignoring small businesses and not really making them uh, not only a priority in reality, but reaching out to try to make them a natural part of the coalition on the left. The Biden administration has done extraordinary things on antitrust. Um, and it's one of the most hopeful, miraculous, wonderful things going on that is also fairly underreported. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I think actually we should circle back to that 
And let me talk about the left and small business first. Okay, sure. Um, so I would, I would actually amend that statement to say that I don't think the the left. It's not a matter of not having prioritized. I think the left very much abandoned small business. Mm. Um, and did so in the 1970s and 1980s. One of the things that I, I went back and, and looked at the at the history of this and, and and wrote about the 20th century, the left's relationship with small business for the for an article for the Nation a, a couple of years ago. And what's really interesting is that whole New Deal period, that period from the 1930s through the 1970s when we had very aggressive anti-monopoly laws, pretty strong enforcement of labor laws, we had you know relatively good ag policies and so on, and a, and a far more equal economy. We had other problems, but um, in in those regards, that was you know there was a, there was a lot to say about that period in in, in our history. That the the coalition that kept Democrats largely in power for most of those decades and that drove a lot of those policies, it was a coalition that was made up of small businesses, including farmers and labor, organized labor. Mm -hmm. And today, most people don't think of the left, uh, don't think of labor and small business as being allies. But in fact, they were. That was the core of the New De New Deal coalition, and the way that the Democratic Party thought about you know itself at that time, um, you know, really that the, the, the core goal of policy, of economic policy in a democracy should be to disperse economic power, should prevent any one entity from gaining too much power, and really saw union, you know, getting a union job and starting a small business as two pathways to the same goal, to the same goal, hmm. giving ordinary people a bigger share of the pie and more say over their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. Those are both ways to achieve this. And so the Democratic Party for all those years was like aggressively pro-union and aggressively small, pro-small business. Um, and that's a lot of what undergirded the anti-monopoly policies of that period. And it's fascinating to go back and look these like the AFL-CIO, the big you know, coalition of labor unions. During those years, they would put out, you know, typically in a given year, they would have like a six point, you know, policy uh, priorities. And inevitably, one of those points was about small business, about increasing lending to small business, about stepping up the antitrust laws to protect small business. I mean, wow. labor was allied with small wow. business wow. very honest. much for all of those decades. Yeah. This surprises people today because we so the, the left so wholly abandoned small business right. um, and did so in the 1970s. And there's you know a complicated history about sort of why that was. It was a you know it was a difficult economic time. There was a lot of chaos. Uh, people trying to figure out you know how to sort things out. There's a, there's a lot of reasons for it, but nevertheless, um, the left really stepped away from being allied with small business and very much abandoned their anti-monopoly stances and into the void that they left, uh, two entities stepped. One was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is probably the most powerful lobbying force of our time. The U.S. Chamber prior to that point did not like to really associate itself with small business. They were like, we're the we're the big important businesses and, and small business, that's not us, right? Mm -hmm. But they, they recognized in that moment and suddenly they started all of their rhetoric was about small business. They realized we can, we can run our big business agenda and, and use small business as a kind of cover story. And they've been doing that ever since, right? Yeah. And then the other thing that happened is that Ronald 
Ronald Reagan recognized it, politically astute as he was, he was like, wait, here's, here's a moment, here's an opportunity. Um, if they're not going to be the party of small business, then the right can be the party of small business. And he started rhetorically talking about small business and basically driving this line that somehow the interests of small businesses are the, you know, are aligned with the interests of big business. And it's like, you know, and we've all grown up in that world, assuming that to be the case, even though it makes no sense whatsoever. Like the right. biggest threat to small business is big business. Right. <laughs> like they're not right. aligned at all, fundamentally not aligned. And yet that is how politics has operated for the last 40 years. And only recently, uh, and I would, I would very much credit the Biden administration, Elizabeth Warren, there are several other leaders with having finally uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal, head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, having really brought small business back into their vision of a progressive economy and and have begun to rebuild this coalition and to rebuild it around a strong you know, anti-monopoly politics. Yeah, that's really something. And and the just that, that quick history lesson, it's almost unimaginable now to think about actually either party, but, but the the Democrats and the party on the left uh, equally prioritizing small business and and labor rights, union rights. Yes, I, I thought that was that was useful set up to then talk about the Biden administration because it has been such a fundamental departure for what Democrats have been doing for the last 40 years and one that we should uh, know more about, spread the word about more and uh, and really spotlight because it, it is so crucial. Um, so, so Biden came in um, about six months after he was elected, and he gave this incredible speech. He issued an executive order, um, and it's an, an executive order on on competition, on restoring, uh, on addressing monopoly problems. I remember that, yeah. And it covers a you know all of the federal agencies and directs them to do uh, dozens of different things to use their authorities to go after corporate power and corporate concentration. It's a great executive order. It's led to a lot of good things. But when he, but what I wanted to note is that he gave this speech that was remarkable. And, and even those of us who are close observers of this were, were blown away and did not expect him to go this far. But he really repudiated all of these years uh, and the philosophy that has guided Democrats and Republicans on antitrust for the last 40 years, just point blank. He said, you know, we have been on a 40 year experiment and it is not working. It has left people worse off and so on. And so he very forcefully repudiated that. And then he appointed to the two antitrust agencies. So we have the Federal Trade Commission and also the antitrust division at the D Department of Justice. They're both involved in in uh, enforcing our antitrust laws and addressing corporate power in other ways as well. He appointed two incredible reformers. So to the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan, who is one of the great, uh, has leading academic thinkers uh, on uh, monopoly. She really dissected what has gone wrong, what happened to policy and where it needs to go with an incredibly aggressive and thoughtful and bold vision for antitrust. He appointed her to chair the FTC, which is you know a huge independent agency with a, with a lot of authority. Um, and also Jonathan Cantor uh, uh, at the antitrust division, who again is one of the leading lights of calling for reform. So you just couldn't imagine. I mean, if you you know if you were sort of to pick from from our perspective, like who's your who's your dream team? Uh, of people to have in these jobs, these were the two people. Mm. Um, 
and uh, and they've so acted extraordinary, on it, right? I mean, it's it's not just that they were good appointees, but they've. Is it right to say that they have been pursuing uh, anti-monopoly policies vigorously in the couple of years they've been in that position? Absolutely. So we've seen, um, you know, Jonathan Cantor, uh, the, the Department of Justice has sued to break up Google. Uh, we're expecting the FTC to file suit against Amazon uh, sometime soon. Also expect that that will be a case to break up the company. They, uh, the agencies jointly have um, have proposed or are in the process of proposing new merger guidelines, which sounds, I know, like it's deep in the weeds, but it's actually hugely consequential. Um, the merger guidelines were changed in 1982 under the Reagan administration, played a pivotal role in what has brought us to where we are, um, and they are going to rewrite those guidelines and like, like, likely will have hugely significant and turn in, in the other direction. There's a bunch of other things. They've also proposed, the FTC has proposed a ban on non-competes, which ensnare workers across our economy. And, you know, what's notable is they didn't say, well, we're going to, you know, limit non-competes or we're going to create some rules around them. They came out and said, let's just ban these because they don't make any sense for ordinary people. And that's, you know, I, I could I could go on and, and, and give you an even longer list, but what you see at every point of the way in terms of what they've done is they've really gone for it. This is not, let's tinker on the margins. Let's actually get to the heart of the problem of power. This is so good. And one of the things when I do our rural urban divide trainings for Ruby is I say, you know, one of the reasons why Democrats have lost so many working people and rural people is because we became wed to this notion of incrementalism, that public policy should always just be like minor tweaks around the edges and little, you know, a, a half step forward and, and a step backward kind of thing. And and if you're living a pretty decent life and you're secure in your income and your family, then minor tweaks probably make sense. But for folks whose lives are going down the toilet, little tweaks to the system don't make much sense. And so it is both extremely unusual and incredibly refreshing that, uh, at least in terms of antitrust, the Biden administration has been really bold out there. That's just great. So I want to close up with your thoughts on how all of this plays into the fundamental question that the Rural Urban Bridge grapples with and that this, this podcast, Two Worlds, One Country, grapples with, which is why have we become so daggone divided, and, and particularly among our divides, across geography. How do you think the corporate takeover of so much of our, not just economy, but our lives, and the concomitant demise of small businesses and family farms has either led to or made worse the rural-urban divide? Boy, that's a big question. And I I, I also want to hear what, what you have to say on this question. I, one thing I will say is that I think the, the most dangerous um, Thing that's going on in our society is is this widespread sense of powerlessness mm. you know lots of americans feel that they don't that they're that they're that the big decisions in their lives and the places that they live and their families are all driven by forces outside of their control you know whether it's it's their employer whether it's big companies uh that run their local economy that, that everything whether it's the fact that that Congress is controlled by largely by lobbyists for big companies and so on. That so many of the most important things are outside of, of our control. And that sense of powerlessness is poisonous in any democracy. You know, it erodes the foundation and it makes people, among other things, um, attracted to strongman politics. 
is there's there is a sense of the idea that the rule of law doesn't have any legitimacy because we all can see that if you're Jeff Bezos and you're Amazon, you can routinely violate the labor laws and there's no consequence. You just keep getting bigger and bigger, right? And I can make a long list, right? right. There's a, lots of ways in which we can look around and see, yeah, apparently if you're powerful, this stuff doesn't apply to you. Right. And that that's just fundamentally poisonous in a democracy. It erodes the whole uh, basis of it. The impetus that the Democratic Party once had, the kind of uh, urgency that it had around solving some of these problems is not there as much as it used to be because the party's base is better off um, and, and is more located in these very, you know, the cities that have prospered. Yeah, um, so that, you know, in terms of actually solving the problem, I, I know I've, I've, I've talked a lot and answered this question, but I, I do want to go back to, to your thing because it's related about incrementalism. And I really agree with that. Um, and I think that there's another layer that was maybe implied in what you were saying, which is the, the part of the reason the Democratic Party back in the 70s and 80s, they really signed on to this like neoliberal ideology mm -hmm. of bigger mm -hmm. is better. What I'm hopeful for in this moment and with Biden is that we're in a stage where there is within progressives are, are repudiating um, that idea and are beginning to articulate a, a new vision in which government structures markets in ways that actually work for people, where government aggressively deals with corporate power, and where we're going to get out of the incrementalism because we're going to stop talking about, yes, we agree on the big things and we're just you know tweaking the edges, and we're really going to get to the problem of, of power and what it means to redistribute power in a way that's that's democratic. This has been so great. It has been a deep dive and a very informative one into how to rebuild the economy and our democracy by broadening the base of people who have some form of power, some control over their lives, by emphasizing the role of small businesses, community banks, and other things, and fighting back against corporate power and monopolization. Stacey, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Two Worlds, One Country. Thank you so much, and thanks for all the great work that you're doing.